from the Center for European Reform. This is the CER podcast. Posons-nous sérieusement la question de l'avenir que nous voulons et ayons tous ensemble le courage de le construire. Für uns in Deutschland ist das Bekenntnis zum vereinten Europa Teil unserer Staatsräson. A strong united Europe is a necessity for the world because an integrated Europe remains vital to our international order. This is the moment for Europe to lead the way towards a new vitality. Hello and welcome to the CER podcast. I'm Octavia Hughes, host of today's episode, and today I'm joined by our Director of Foreign Policy, Ian Bond, and Senior Research Fellow, Luigi Scazzieri. Welcome back to the podcast. Tomorrow, leaders from across the world will arrive in Vilnius in Lithuania for NATO's annual summit. During a recent meeting at the White House with Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg, Joe Biden declared that the Allies have never been more united. But while Russia's invasion of Ukraine has certainly given NATO a fresh sense of purpose, it seems like there's plenty to discuss and disagree on over the next few days. Biden, for one, is keen to encourage Turkey and Hungary to support Sweden's membership. And Estonian Prime Minister is pushing allies to adopt a new military spending target of 2.5% to keep in line with the new reality of long-term conflict with Russia. This is all even while less than a third of members meet the current 2% target. Meanwhile, Lithuania and its neighbours will be pushing for more muscle in Eastern Europe following the relocation of Wagner Group mercenaries to Belarus. All this while Ukraine hopes to secure more weapons and a concrete NATO commitment to Kyiv's future membership that goes beyond the established but vague vow that the country will one day be admitted to the alliance. Ian, if I could start with you, could you give us some background on Ukraine's bid to join NATO? How long has Ukraine been asking for membership and how have attitudes to their joining changed amongst other member states over that period? Well, Ukraine first asked for membership in 2002 under President Leonid Kuchma, but it's been a kind of on-again, off-again relationship for quite a long time. There wasn't a majority of the Ukrainian population in favour of joining NATO. It was different from the EU, where I think for a very long time there's been a majority of Ukrainians who wanted to join the EU. And various Ukrainian presidents have had different attitudes. Kuchma supported it. His successor, Yushchenko, supported it. Then Yanukovych, who was more kind of pro-Russian, opposed it and basically said that Ukraine should be neutral. He was the one who ran away in 2014. And after him and after the Russian invasion that followed his fleeing to Russia, Ukrainians have gradually become more and more pro-NATO in response largely to the threat that they perceive from Russia. Now, in terms of allied attitudes, in 2008, the Americans were very gung-ho for Ukraine and Georgia to be given an immediate pathway to NATO membership by giving them something called a membership action plan. The rest of the allies, or certainly some of the Western European allies, were a bit uncomfortable with that. And so the compromise was this statement that Georgia and Ukraine will join NATO, but with no timetable and no sort of specific plan for how they might do that. And that's basically where they have been stalled ever since. Now, because of the war, because of Russia's all-out attack on Ukraine last year, you've seen growing support for giving Ukraine membership of NATO. But the key obstacles now seem to be the US and Germany, and they're both much more nervous about this. Great. Thank you, Ian. 
So it seems quite clear that Ukraine won't be offered an immediate path to membership. Luigi, what else can NATO do to support Ukraine? Well, thank you for the question. I mean, first of all, I agree with Ian that at the moment, membership is not an option. I think the whole debate hinges on currently how clearly Ukraine should be offered a path to membership after the war. And I think the positions that the US and Germany have taken make me quite skeptical that there's going to be a firm and very clearly set out process for Ukraine to join because several allies are cautious about being drawn into a process that they may later have trouble in stopping. In terms of what NATO can do right now, we already know of several steps that will happen. So first of all, NATO will upgrade its bilateral ties to Ukraine, setting up a NATO-Ukraine council that's going to hold its first meeting on the 12th. And the idea behind this is really that there should be more frequent consultation and that NATO as an organization can then have closer cooperation with Ukraine in terms of dialogue, but also intelligence sharing, setting standards, and the defense industrial aspect as well. It's also possible that allies, to make a political gesture, will agree that Ukraine doesn't need to have a membership action plan, which normally sets out the process for allies to join, and that would make joining slightly easier when the time comes. But again, that would only actually become relevant really when the fighting stops. So for now, I think the main thing that NATO will be focusing on is continuing to provide Ukraine with military support. And it is worth noting that I think allies have been more and more forward-leaning, not as much as the Ukrainians want. But if we think back a few months when the delivery of tanks was extremely controversial, now we're talking about sending Ukraine F-16 fighter jets. And indeed, we may well see announcements about the start of the training for Ukrainian pilots at the summit. But a, a key challenge really is ensuring that these deliveries can continue, that this practical support can continue. And that depends to a very large extent on whether NATO can ramp up its industrial capacity to actually produce enough of the equipment that Ukraine needs. There's a lot of work that has already been done in the US and in Europe. But the basic issue remains that defense companies are unwilling to invest in what is a very large increase in production, unless they actually have more clarity about the future trajectory of defense spending, because otherwise there would be a risk of essentially losing money and being left with assets that governments are unwilling to pay for. So I think expanding industrial capacity really has to be a priority for NATO leaders if if they want to help Ukraine. And at the same time, NATO needs to think about how it can harmonize Ukraine's arsenal because of the many different types of equipment that have been donated since the start of the war, starting with old Soviet equipment and then transitioning to modern Western equipment. But the result of that, there's really many, many different types of kit with a difficult to manage arsenal in terms of logistics. I do also think, and Ian will have thoughts on this as well, I imagine, the discussion on bilateral security guarantees, because there's an idea that some allies may be able to offer Ukraine security guarantees before joining NATO, or perhaps as an alternative to it. And I don't see, definitely not by the major allies, a a willingness to risk intervening directly in the conflict by putting troops on the ground in Ukraine on the front lines in a way that would be a meaningful deterrent, because avoiding conflict with Russia has been the overarching constraint on Western support for Ukraine. So in reality, these bilateral guarantees are essentially pledges to continue providing Ukraine with assistance, which, you know, is very useful and indeed essential for Ukraine. But I think it ultimately brings us back to the question of industrial capacity and the ability of the West to implement such pledges. Thanks, Luigi. Ian, would you like to add anything to that? 
Yeah, I mean, Joe Biden gave an interview on CNN over the weekend, which I think was quite interesting on some of the points that Luigi has raised. And he was very much talking in terms of, in fact, he said very explicitly in terms of the US offering the same kind of military support to Ukraine that it offers to Israel, which is to say, according to American law, uh, the US has to give Israel a so-called qualitative military edge over any of its potential adversaries in the Middle East. So it's always got to have better equipment than any of its neighbours. An enormous amount of US money is spent on keeping Israel able to defend itself. And what Biden is saying is, you know, that's the sort of deal that would be on offer to Ukraine. I know we're going to come on to the question of Russia later, but I mean, I just think it's worth flagging up that the one big difference is that Israel is itself a country with nuclear weapons. That is Israel's ultimate deterrent against an attack, whereas Ukraine is facing the country that has more nuclear weapons than any other on Earth, namely Russia. And Ukraine does not have any nuclear weapons, and that does make a considerable difference. But still, I think it's interesting that Biden is talking in terms of equipping Ukraine to such a standard in its conventional forces that it would be able to deter any future attack. I think that's a big financial commitment. And I wonder whether the rest of the allies are yet ready for that. That's very interesting. Thanks, Ian. And that leads us quite nicely onto the question of defence spending. So right now, NATO has a target according to which each member should spend 2% of its GDP on defence, which obviously a lot of countries fall short of at the moment. Have allies come closer to that goal over the past year, Luigi? And how do you assess the likely trajectory of defence spending going ahead? Yeah, so as you mentioned, not many allies actually meet that goal. Only six European allies uh, met it in 2022. From the data we have, the picture in 2023 should be better. So apparently spending actually grew by 8.3% in the European allies and Canada, with the biggest rises in percentage terms amongst the allies along the eastern flank, such as Poland and the Baltic states. But perhaps the most significant overall really is Germany's 100 billion special fund. And France and the UK have also pledged substantial increases. What actually happens in practice is, is less clear in the sense that there are doubts over whether much of the promised money will actually materialise, given the pressure in many countries to fund other priorities, not least healthcare, pensions and the energy transition. And I would make the point that it's easy for governments to spend money on defence when citizens very clearly feel under threat. And that's not the case in most of the big European spenders, at least not in terms of displacing other priorities. So for example, in the UK, polling suggests that fewer than 10% of citizens see defence as one of the top three priorities for the country. And the UK is normally seen as quite hawkish and definitely very serious on defence spending. So I think those constraints are going to slowly work their way through countries' political systems, quite possibly watering down many of these planned increases. And the biggest question is over whether Germany will actually be able to meet the 2% target for very long, because the special fund is set to run out in a few years. And at the same time, the normal defence budget has hardly grown. So there's really no guarantee that Germany will meet the 2% target in the long term. And that uncertainty over funding really complicates having an overall strategy about how to ensure that the German army can actually perform the tasks that allies demand of it, which are increasingly demanding, uh, with Germany supposed to take on what is in essence a leading role in the land defense of Europe's eastern flank. And as I mentioned earlier, this lack of 
clarity over what trajectory defense spending will have is also what complicates the industrial side of the picture because it makes it hard for defense firms to make investments to ramp up production. And then there's inflation which has been high and it eats away at the real terms value of additional defense funds by increasing the cost of raw materials of labor and so on. And going to the UK as an example, we can see this phenomenon because if you look at the data that NATO released just the other day, UK defense spending has actually dropped in real terms over the last couple of years, despite what were what appeared to be some fairly substantial spending increases under Boris Johnson. And then there's the issue of fragmentation of spending in Europe, which is a very old story with each country essentially going its own way, which is very inefficient and prevents economies of scale. And both NATO and the EU have a range of efforts to address this, which we could spend a long time discussing, but in essence, they will take a long time to pay off. So I would say the overall picture was one where European NATO allies were investing more in defence, but there are also rather significant headwinds. And that, to my mind, means that the burden sharing debate within the alliance will continue to have the potential to be a very big source of tension, particularly if the US has some Trump-like or indeed a Republican figure, because they tend to be more focused on this issue than the Democrats, if that is the outcome of next year's election. Thanks, Luigi. Ian, I wanted to ask you about Ukraine's NATO membership. You've been quite clear in your belief that Ukraine should be allowed to join NATO as soon as possible before its war with Russia ends. Would this not increase the possibility of nuclear escalation and risk sending a signal to Putin and Russian people that they're effectively fighting a proxy war with NATO in the US, exacerbating a Cold War-esque East-West divide? Yeah, these are ways of looking at the question that one often hears, sometimes but not always from Moscow. I mean, let me start with the proxy war argument. This is not a proxy war. Russia attacked Ukraine. It is a direct war between Russia and Ukraine, and that's all there is to it. NATO countries have been helping Ukraine to defend itself, but Ukraine is exercising its inherent right to self-defense under the UN Charter. It's not that this is a kind of war that you sometimes saw during the Cold War, where both both Russia and the US would have proxy forces on the ground in some third country, and they would fight out their ideological battles using those arm's length forces. I mean, Angola, probably a good example of that, where the Soviet Union backed one side and the United States backed the other side in the Angolan Civil War. This is not like that. This is a straight state attack on another state. Now, Putin will portray it and has portrayed it anyway as a war against NATO and the US. But that's his problem. And nothing that we do or say is going to change the propaganda that he uses internally to try to persuade the Russian people that he hasn't made a terrible mistake. The reality is he has made a terrible mistake. And if one looks at the justifications that he gave before the war or the relationship between Ukraine and Russia, NATO hardly figures in it in a sense. It's all about Putin's belief that Russia and and Ukraine are one, that historically they should be united. So, you know, this is something that Putin has believed for a long time. Back in 2013, before the beginning of the conflict between Russia and Ukraine, he told our director at the CER, Charles Grant, at a meeting that Russians and Ukrainians were one people, in his view. 
So this is a, a long-standing problem that he has, that he doesn't really think that Ukraine has the right to exist as an independent country. So that's the NATO angle barely comes into that, except as a bit of propaganda that is occasionally used by him and by other Russian leaders. Now, the nuclear escalation point is that, that is obviously something that Joe Biden and people around him are very concerned about. It's certainly the case that Russia has threatened to use nuclear weapons in this conflict on a number of occasions and has not done so so far. Now, there are some people who say it isn't going to and others who say there is a risk which is greater than zero that it might. My own view is that it's quite unlikely that Putin, though he may have a different rationality from us, is rational enough to know that starting a nuclear war would not end well for Russia. Wouldn't end well for anybody else either. But the principle of nuclear deterrence is you don't start down this path because you know where it leads. Now, what Putin has shown, not just in this war, but previously as well, is a great reluctance to confront NATO directly. And so my view is it's not NATO's strength that provokes Putin, it's NATO's weakness. So it's when NATO says we're not going to do X or Y that Putin sees this as an opportunity to be seized. And I think what he has so far believed when it comes to the nuclear stuff is that if you say we will launch nuclear weapons at Europe, then the tendency in Washington is to say, oh gosh, we mustn't let that happen. So we must find some off-ramp for Putin so that he doesn't do it. Whereas my view is that actually that is almost guaranteeing that the conflict will escalate. If you don't want the conflict to escalate, you have to say very firmly to Putin, if you keep doing this, it is going to have catastrophic consequences for Russia. And you know what NATO forces are capable of doing, even without going nuclear let alone if they go nuclear. So is that a risk that you want to run? I mean, it's kind of the, the Clint Eastwood approach, if you're familiar with the Dirty Harry movies. You point the gun at the guy and you say, are you feeling lucky, punk? And that is very much Putin's mindset. You know, he, on the whole, has shown himself not willing to check whether he is lucky. And I think NATO needs to take a very firm line. And that is the way to bring the war to an end, not to continue to show nervousness. Thanks, Ian, and thanks for letting me play devil's advocate. If we look beyond the immediate conflict now, what should NATO and the EU's relationship with Russia look like once a resolution is reached? Have member states reached a consensus on that? Is it something that's being planned for even? Planned would be an exaggeration. I think there is some discussion of it, and there certainly isn't a consensus. So a lot has to do with how this conflict ends. Does it end in some sort of a peace deal and Russia retreating within its own borders and accepting that those borders are fixed for the foreseeable future? Or does it end with a kind of messy Cyprus-like partition of the country or even worse, something where you basically have still two armies facing each other with a bit of ground between them and occasional exchanges of fire which don't lead to a total breakdown of the ceasefire, but which could at some point, you know, the kind of thing that we have seen elsewhere in the former Soviet Union, for example, between Armenia and Azerbaijan, where a ceasefire that was occasionally violated over many years eventually broke down completely and Azerbaijan took back a lot of the territory that had previously been occupied by Armenia. So there's a lot of questions about how the war ends, and that will determine what kind of relationship NATO and the EU might have with Russia in the future. 
I think as far as the EU's relationship with Russia, one thing we can pretty certainly say is that the EU will never go back to being as dependent on oil and gas imports from Russia as it was prior to 2022. I mean, there are a lot of people who said that was a foolish position to get yourself into. The Germans in particular always said, no, no, you know, all the way through the Cold War, the Soviet Union had been a reliable supplier of energy. This was never going to be a problem. Well, it turned out to be a problem when Putin decided that the this was a lever that he could use against Europe, then he used it. Now, we've come through it better than we expected, partly because the winter was warmer than might have been feared. But there's no guarantee that in the future that would be the case. And I think Europe will be very determined not to become as dependent on Russian energy supplies. When it comes to NATO, rightly or wrongly, NATO has not pulled out of the so-called NATO-Russia Founding Act, which is the kind of umbrella agreement that was reached in parallel with the beginnings of NATO enlargement to reassure Russia. And NATO undertook certain commitments, which it has stuck to. Russia undertook certain commitments in terms of respecting its neighbours' borders that it has not stuck to. But still, that agreement is still there on paper. And I guess that if you got a future Russian regime that NATO felt it could trust more than it has been able to trust Vladimir Putin, then things could change. You could see a return to that kind of dialogue between Russia and NATO. But I think if we end up in a situation where you've still basically got two armies facing each other, it's quite hard to see anything other than quite a confrontational relationship between the EU and NATO on one side and Russia on the other. So coverage of Vilnius has focused a lot on the Ukraine question, but heads of state from Japan, South Korea, New Zealand and Australia are all going to be present too and will be keen to talk China. Ian, has the Secretary of State Antony Blinken and Treasury Secretary's recent visit to Beijing done anything to ease Sino-American tensions? And where is the rest of NATO in this? Yeah, so the Blinken visit and the Yellen visit, I think, do seem to mark some sort of an effort on both sides to lower the level of tension. I mean, this is still going to be quite a tense relationship. There's a lot of concern about Taiwan. Taiwan has a presidential election next year, and everybody will be watching that. The Chinese will be hoping that a more kind of pro-China candidate will win. That seems decreasingly likely, partly because the way that China has thrown its weight around both towards Taiwan, but also in Hong Kong, has made a lot of Taiwanese people less willing to contemplate a closer relationship with China. Whereas I think if China had been a bit softer in its approach, given the extent of economic ties between Taiwan and the mainland, it might have been easier to improve the relationship. But still, Blinken and Yellen have both done a bit of outreach to the Chinese. I think there is a bit of an attempt to remind everybody of the importance of the economic relationship, which is vital to both sides. The US economy would be hugely damaged if it were cut off from China. The Chinese economy would be hugely damaged if it were cut off from the US. Now, you know, where is the rest of NATO on this? I think there has been some convergence between European members of NATO and the US. If you'd asked the same question a few years ago, I think most European members of NATO saw China primarily in terms of economic opportunity. The EU signaled quite a change in that in 2019 
when it created a kind of three-legged stool for understanding relations with China, which was that China was a partner in some areas like combating climate change. It was a competitor in some areas, so particularly economically, but it was also a systemic rival promoting an alternative model of governance. And it's that which I think has become increasingly important in recent years. It's that idea that you know, China is trying to promote a kind of technological authoritarianism to a range of countries, particularly in the developing world, in the global south, as it's sometimes called. And, uh, you know, this poses something of a risk for Western countries, for European countries as well. So there is some convergence there. I think because of the war in Ukraine, I can't imagine that most Europeans are going to want to spend a lot of time talking about China. But I think they are conscious that there are some risks. There are risks to defence industries and sensitive defence technologies, and there are cyber risks and so on. And NATO has to take account of what China's capabilities are in those areas, even if it doesn't think that it is directly confronting China. Thank you to both of you for joining me for this week's CER podcast, and I'm sure we'll have you back again soon. Thank you also to our listeners at home. If you'd like to stay informed on all things Europe, subscribe to the CER wherever you get your podcasts. Goodbye and see you next time. Thank you for listening to the CER podcast. If you have any feedback for us or want to leave suggestions for a future episode, then you can find us on Twitter at CER underscore EU.